listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. So I had an interesting experience today as I was driving my car. There, there are two, two things that occurred. One, um, I was getting tailgated uh, aggressively. And I gotta, gotta admit, there, there was a time when I would have had an awful lot of fun with that experience of getting tailgated. I might have given a particular salute to the person. Uh, I might have slowed down. Uh, I might have, I mean, there are all sorts of things. I, I, and this was going through my head as I was getting tailgated. It was actually kind of funny. Um, and I did this, this thing I, I didn't expect. I, I changed lanes. I, I signaled first and changed lanes. And it was the easiest thing. <laughs> <It's the easy. laughs> it was just so simple. I just changed lanes. Um, and it was an example to me of how meditation works. <laughs> how meditation can be so helpful. Uh, and it's good for the teacher to get little doses of that once in a while. Uh, that was really nice. And then the second thing that occurred was I noticed that there, it, right in my sight line as I'm looking out of my windshield, there is this remarkable scratch that goes right, right across. I mean, it's, and it's at a diagonal too. So when light hits it, it go, it's, it's as if I'm cross-eyed, but then I have to like see past it. It's really fascinating <laughs> kind of how it, how it plays with the light. Um, and here again, there would have been a time when something like that, I mean, that's my car, you know, that's, you know, clearly an extension of my, my manhood and everything else, you know, that windshield, I mean, the window to a man's soul, there aren't his eyeballs, there, it's his windshield, you know, that's, um, what, the, the, the initial impulse, and yet again, another little reminder, you know, how this, this practice can really change us, I think, at some type of core level, was that it was, I was noticing how beautiful it was to have to look through this, this obstruction and see past it. And it reminded me so much of what this practice is about. Um, maybe I'll get upset by it tomorrow, but I kind of don't think so. It's just... Uh, I, I talk so often about how Im imperative it is for us to begin to practice with very small things, little things that annoy us, and then get really clear about what it is actually that is annoying us. What does it feel like? Where does it strike us in our bodies? 
what would it be like if we were no longer in opposition to our aging, to our financial position, to our relationships with people, with our jobs? Just entertain that for a moment. What would it be like if there was no longer deep opposition in your life? If none of us here was really clinging to a position. We had a really neat conversation about this towards the end of last week's Dharma talk during the Q&A. Uh, a, a person brought up the, you know, the, the point of, well, you know, it's, it says that you know, this is so, and this is so, and this is so. And my whole argument for last week's talk was, yeah, what would it be like if you let go of that? What would it be like, what would it be like for any of us in this room, actually, to really let go of your convictions, those deeply held beliefs, not to get rid of them, not to get rid of them, but to create space around them. When we can create space around our convictions, they bloom more beautifully. They become expressions of the infinite as opposed to contracted expressions of our egoic defensiveness. Does that kind of make sense? And so this is one of the things I would really like to, I would like to carry, it was a, it's a perfect segue into kind of what I, I'm, I'm going to try to do uh, with each of us this week. And that's to take us into this space of non-opposition. What would non-opposition taste like to you? What, just imagine, once again, what would it be like if, if there wasn't any opposition? If I may read real quickly from... I remember when a woman was very upset with the teacher giving a talk on the topic of non-opposition. Basically, he was emphasizing that the gift and curse of adulthood centers around our ability to reflect on our minds and bodies. This reflection allows us to go past mind and body if we don't attach to any part of the process. Little kids, I remember him saying, can't do this like we can. Kids are always better than we are at this, a woman countered after his talk. Isn't that what we're trying to do here, reclaim our childlike states of innocence? He gave an interesting response, saying that while childlike states of innocence are beautiful to experience, the experience is never anything other than a pointer to what is beyond the experience itself. Let me say that again, because this is really key to the teaching here. Childlike states of innocence are beautiful to experience. The experience is never anything, however, other than a pointer to what is beyond the experience itself. It's not that the infinite only extends outside of us. It extends within us as well. As such, this thing we call me is like a screen door to the universe, swinging open and closed, never really keeping anything in or out. So it helps to recognize that any state we might reach is simply pointing us in a certain direction. 
any state we reach is simply pointing us in a certain direction. Imagine the last greatest experience of bliss that you felt. The last great experience of love, of joy, of laughter. Each of those experiences is a pointer into the house of God. It's into spirit. It's pointing us toward the infinite. Similarly, remember the last experience of panic, of grief, of despair, of abject fear, of lack. Every one of those experiences is pointing you directly into the house of God of spirit. How can this be? How can it be that any experience that we are having is actually pointing us in exactly the same direction? Well, it's because all experiences that we have are invitations. All experiences that we have are invitations from the infinite to come back home. If any of us looks at our grief deeply enough, at our fear deeply enough, we will see that it's sourced from exactly the same place as our joy. As our love, as our bliss. The trick is looking at it deeply enough. And that's where we get this major filter, this blockage, this blockage that gets in the way and says, this is an invitation into the house of God. This is not. This is something I want to avoid. I will therefore energize it by avoiding it with all of my might. And that I that is doing all of this talking and evaluating and compartmentalizing, excuse me, and categorizing is what we call the ego or the small self. You follow the small self to its core. If you follow the ego to its core, this I sense to its core, you uncover spirit. You uncover space. And in that place, there's just this openness, a readiness to participate fully with whatever is showing up. whether it's a scratch on your windshield or the loss of someone you love. The loss of a job or the giggle of your grandchild. They start to take on a miraculously similar tone. There's variance 
but the song is quite similar. And it's one of amazing beauty, joy, relaxation, peace, liberation. And we get there by sitting still. That's the shortcut. <laughs> sitting still. One of the most difficult things in the world. <laughs> I remember that for me. I, I can't speak for any of you, but for me, man, when I had this second grade teacher who, bless her heart, I'm not kidding about this. She was married, um, if I remember correctly, it was seven times. I'm guessing, and her name was not Zsa Zsa either. I mean, I'm just thinking it was, there was something going on there that uh, I'm sure just a, th a therapist's field day. But anyway, um, <laughs> this, this woman, um, she realized real quickly that the way to destroy me was to force me to sit still. <laughs> and look what happened. <laughs> so I, I offer nine bows to her just about every chance I get. I really do think in some strange way she helped me get here on this cushion in front of you right now. And I was, as I've said to several of you before, I was cornered. I, there was no place to go. No place to go except in. A beautiful gift. And it's an invitation I'm offering to each of you. I, will, I have only been married once, so I'm sure that means that I'm in better shape than my second grade teacher, and I can hopefully actually, instead of corner you <laughs> in the way that she did by forcing you to sit still, I'm just going to ask. You don't have to. You can cheat if you want. But just know that the shortcut to this liberation about which I'm speaking centers itself around stillness. So I once had this marvelous discussion with a student, a Sangha member, and she said, uh, she said, so, so like, you know, so what is this, what is this awakening thing really? <laughs> and I, I never know how to answer that question, but I, I, of course, spouted off with something immediately, which is always probably the best choice at least 40% of the time. And I said, uh, I said, well, it's whenever there is the expanse from the small to the big. Whenever we have the expanse from the contraction into the expansion, that's when we are in the presence of our own <coughs> awakening. And her comeback was, oh, you mean so like whenever you see something beautiful? Yep. Before it becomes beautiful. Okay? In other words, and that, of course, threw her when I said that part. You know, before it becomes beautiful, she, you know, then the, the head kind of cocked and said, uh, don't really get it. And that's okay. The ego doesn't get that at all. Prior to it becoming 
beautiful when it's just something magical, something mystical, something divine. That's an expansion from the small to the big. And this can happen in music. I think music actually is a marvelous conduit for this, at least, at least on a very superficial level. It helps us lose the sense of selfhood. We can uh, trance our way sometimes with music out of what's going on right now um, into just literally a sense of like we can shake off whatever it is. But the kind of awakening that we're addressing, or at least endeavoring to address here, is an awakening that takes us outside of ourselves. And the, the self that I'm talking about here, I refer to it as the small self or the ego, that happens whenever we begin to observe, totally observe our experience as it is happening. And this is a trick. This is, this is hard work. This is why it's, we call it practice, as I've said so often. We, we begin not to identify, I guess is another way of putting it, with our stories of what's right and what's wrong, who we think we are. We begin to lose that. As opposed to who we think we are, we begin dancing in this space of something bigger. Not who we think we are, but what is beyond our conception of ourselves. If any of you have ever held a small child that's totally vulnerable, that impulse to care for them is beyond your concept of self. And you might say, well, it's instinct. Okay, maybe it is. How about when you look at that child and you allow yourself to open to it? You allow love in. And miraculously, the more you let the love in, the more it flows outward. Right there is something that is truly beautiful and is quite simply an expanse from something that is small into something that is beyond. So we essentially, we find this, uh, this, this opening in, uh, in two levels. One, we, we begin to have an open mind, an open mind, not just tolerant, I tolerate that, Instead, it's open as in a mind that is built and centered around wonder. We also do this around our bodies. We build a relationship around feelings and emotions that aren't all about getting something that feels good but are about experiencing totally what is actually happening. And I've actually 
it seems to me that this is a trickier component than actually developing a relationship with mind. Oftentimes practitioners will find that they can, they can actually begin watching their thoughts and they can go, oh, that's a negative thought and that's a positive thought and oh, well, there's space around those. But when it comes to feelings, where the mind actually meets the body, they have a little bit more difficulty. One of my favorite lines uh, uh, from, uh, it was in a, I, I just got this email that just cracked me up. It was playing, uh, uh, playing around with this idea of no self, you know, the, the, the Buddhist or non-dual idea that there's no self and so forth. Um, well, if there's no self, the, the email read, if there's no self, then whose arthritis is this? You know? It's, it's the, uh, 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 Jewish Buddhist sayings, you know? Oi! And, uh, um, it's, it's really fascinating because what happens is, is we begin to deepen our practice and we, we develop this, this kind of this open, open mind around our thoughts. We then suddenly are faced with the you know, the, the biggie, which is our bodies. Can we allow our bodies to be an absolute wreck? Can we allow them to be just falling apart or just causing, causing huge problems for us? Can we, can we literally allow that and then watch the experience as it unfolds? Developing an open relationship to our minds and an open relationship to our bodies actually allows us to become Beautiful. Imagine that. Imagine if any of us in this room could look in the mirror as we stand there in our nakedness without anything covering our faces or anything else and just feeling beautiful. Nothing extra. Just being a radiant expression of spirit. That's all. Imagine that. Some of you may have had the good fortune of seeing someone who is in that space, who is a radiant expression of beauty, and there's nothing extra. That was one of the greatest compliments I ever heard paid to uh, uh, Suzuki Roshi, who was my teacher's teacher. When asked, you know, what, what was it that was so great about Suzuki Roshi, the, uh, the response was, there's nothing extra. Nothing extra. And there really wasn't much extra. He was tiny. this tiny little guy who just carried, carried this, this just beautiful presence. So, true beauty is lived then. We live true beauty. We live spirit through this open mind, through this open body that's accepting, truly accepting of itself and of itself in everything else. And it shows up as an expansive heart. An open mind and an open body. A truly beautiful being shows up in the world as an expansive heart. And this expansive heart only increases 
It only increases. And this is because it's plugged into infinity. And infinity loves seeing itself everywhere. We become a conduit to love. And it doesn't show up in the world as sentimentality, as necessarily being saccharine sweet. It shows up as kind of a divine power, a, a presence, being. And every one of us has this. Every one of us, every single one of us, all beings, has this at their core. And one of the cool things is that the recognition of this, I think, used to be uh, bizarrely reserved for the, for the lucky few until what seems like now. Stuff like, you know, this stuff's happening a lot now at an increasing rate. Thank goodness. And some good news is when we show up to the world as an expansive heart, we recognize that it's big enough to hold all the world's pain, including our own. It doesn't negotiate for, well, I will express myself tenderly here, but not here. It, it, it's, it doesn't negotiate. It doesn't need to, because it's undivided. It's not in opposition. It's not clinging to its stories. It's actually let the stories go. Let all the stories of the mind go. Let all the stories of the body go. And what's left? Once again, an expansive heart. In this space, in this expansive heart, we find that our, uh, I mean, this opening, this opening from the small to the big, this true beauty, it, it's reflexive. It, 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 it's contagious. Or to put it in Enlightenment 2.0 terms, it's viral. <laughs> it just propagates. It just goes. It's not something we have to manage. It's not something that we work at. It's something that arises spontaneously. And whether or not it's received the way we want doesn't matter anymore. That's an old story that the ego would have loved, you know, to get something for its gift. Instead, we just, we become the ultimate in giving So my challenge is to, to each of you is to look at where you're closed. <laughs> look at the stories you're clinging to. Actually, look at whatever you're clinging to, okay? And know that it's a thought. Know that it's mind. Or know that it's, it's in your body, still a script authored by the mind. What do I mean by that? Well, actually, any discomfort that you might be feeling in your body or any glory that you might be feeling in your body, all of that sensory orientation merely feeds the mind 
okay? And so ultimately, if we can create a situation where we generate space through our meditation and, you know, our reading, uh, our practice with uh, um, spiritual friends and so forth, if we can create a space around our thoughts, around everything we really cling to, the unclenching of our minds generates this true beauty. It becomes an effortless reaction to that opening. And so one of the little tests that, uh, that we can do is to check in with our experience. How often are we wondering as opposed to how often are we doubting? It's okay to doubt, but are you clinging to it? Wonder is always open. Doubt is not. Doubt is negotiating. And that's the purview of ego. Ego loves to negotiate. It wants this for that. I will give to that person so I will feel less guilty. Aha, I'm generous. It becomes a very egoic, egoic giving. Now, does this mean that none of you should give? No. Give, but don't ever give from that place. Only give when you can see yourself in the other. How often are you going through your, your day-to-day from a place of no reference point? where all possibilities are open to you, as opposed to going into your life with a slew of templates that you will throw down onto various circumstances saying, oh yeah, I know that, Uh, you know, how often? Just check, check in. How often do you see things as brand new, as opposed to same old, same old? How often do you meet the world from a place that is totally undefended? (laughs) That one's usually pretty rare. But if you can, you've gone from small to big. If you are going at the world, rather, from a place that is all about, well, if they say this, then I'll say this. And then if you you go into this bizarrely egoic flowchart of how to win, If you're in that space, it's an interesting clue to drop those stories. Now, none of this means that you should leave tonight and, you know, just take your hands off the steering wheel to see what will happen because it's all good. Actually, no, that would be really bad. That is not awakening. That's what we call knuckleheadedness. This work involves incorporating the big into the small, okay? It is indeed putting camels through the eyes of needles. We're trying to integrate something bigger into our day-to-day. So, again, it doesn't mean that we lose ourselves 
in infinity, oh, nothing matters. It means that everything matters. Play for keeps. But play wisely. And playing wisely means that we play openly. And when we play with openness and wonder, as opposed to doubt and conviction, there's this really cool thing that every one of you can uncover. It's called fun. Ready to play? <laughs> Any questions? Yeah. Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on <coughs> faith. Mm-hmm. Because most of the um, religious beliefs that I'm familiar with, or at least maybe um, when someone typically is a Christian, mm-hmm. they believe in Jesus and that he is a God, a guy in the sky, and mm. that he'll take care of everything that's going on in their life, and um, they have faith that that's going to happen. And I'm I'm not really sure. I mean, I understand how you say that we can have Christ consciousness and Buddhahood and all things are one and all religions are essentially have the same core. Yeah. But that seemed that idea of having faith in a person who's otherworldly seems very different from what we're doing. And I'm wondering how it's connected. Well, it's a, it's a great question. I think that faith in the way you're describing it is actually, you could read it as an attachment to some future salvation. Okay. Which means that we imbue future, we imbue the future with meaning, which takes us out of the now and keeps us from awakening. Okay? Mm-hmm. So... In that way, faith can be quite harmful to this opening that we're talking about, moving from the small to the big, because it keeps us small. If we are attaching to a story, we have faith in that story, when faith becomes just another way of saying clinging or attachment, right? Faith, on the other hand, is something that just about everyone who ever gets on a spiritual path must employ, because the climb up the mountain of spirit is not always pretty. The view is always pretty. The climb is not. So what do we do? Well, we, what we, we essentially take what others have done prior to us and try to integrate that into our practice. You know, And it comes from some type of tradition, usually. Um, I can only speak for myself, but had I not had, you know, that had I not had the, had I not wanted this badly enough, it never would have happened. And that want came into there was a there's almost a I should say a confidence that if they could do it, I can do it, which is totally egoic, isn't it? Right. But what that did is it fueled the journey to a place where the that that story could no longer apply. Yet I was already so far along that I couldn't go back the other direction. And then I just had to have faith that my teachers 
knew what the heck they were doing. Right? Mm-hmm. That was really scary. It was really scary. I was really lucky. Um, so how does it all connect? Well, Christ consciousness or our Buddha nature or this witnessing awareness, you know, whatever you want to call it, this openness in the present moment has nothing to do with faith. Every one of us is experiencing it right now, whether our minds are letting us recognize it or not. We're experiencing it. Okay? But faith also is really, really applicable in that it helps the ego lose its grip on itself over time. And I'm not using that faith in religious terminology at all. That's different from what you were, you were talking about. I would agree that the faith that you were kind of describing, I have, I have faith that the Buddha said, you know, if I follow the Buddha path, I will definitely get, mm, watch out. Or I have faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that it was a virgin birth and he arose from the dead. The minute we start doing that, what we do is we just you know, give all this imputational force to these stories. I don't know if they're true or false, but that's not the point of awakening, whether they're true or false. The point of awakening is creating enough space around the story to begin to recognize the freedom that the story points to. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I guess I'm just wondering how many people, I mean, since the whole world, well, not the whole world, it seems like there are so many people that are in a Christian faith that Mm -hmm. how many of them really get it and how many of them are just clinging to a story? I don't know how many... Not that it matters. I'm just curious. The egos want to know that, though. (laughs) Don't they? They want to... And then they want... I also want to get really smug about their own Buddhism or whatever it is that we're doing, you know? Yeah. Um, Try to watch that. Because what that'll do is that'll keep you from seeing yourself in them. And the minute you create that division, you're staying small. (laughs) Yes. Can you, um, being cornered, cornering mm-hmm. the wild man mm-hmm. who so desperately wants to escape, mm-hmm. who wants to find a way out, mm-hmm. can you talk on how to corner the wild man? Thank you. Just yeah. <laughs> Give him a really, really big cage. I need more than that. Can you help me more? Sure. Yeah. Well, in other words, in other words, cornering the wild man, the, the wild man that wants, as long as you, as long as you can observe the wild man doing his little thing, that, that presence, which can observe, the the wild man spinning and churning and lifting and raging and all, this, the presence that can observe it, is free from it. That's your space. The problem is my wild man jumps out of the cage. Yeah. I can no longer sit with him, but for short periods of time. Or, and, you know, it's day to day. Right, right. what I'm saying. It's I like do. He's jumping and gone. Next thing you know, I'm off at work again. Mm-hmm. Or I completely lost any perception of right. depth. Yeah. Well, um, my suggestion would be to um, know that he's your friend in your practice and make sure that your awareness. Gives him a kiss on the cheek every time he shows up. 
Because if you're trying to go into hand-to-hand -hand combat with him, basically what he's doing is he's setting up a straw man to beat down. He's setting up a partner. He, he has to have conflict. Ego has to have conflict. That in us which is small must have conflict in order to survive. So when you give him no opposition, but you study, you give him the light of your awareness, and you beam it right onto him, and you kiss him on the cheek, Mwah. he can't help but either freak out more, at which point you have to turn up your awareness even more, or give up. And over time, I promise you, he will do the latter. But this is where it takes, it's my daily sitting. I, I highly recommend daily sitting. And the minute wild man comes up, you go, oh, welcome. <laughs> it's good to see you again. Come here, let me give you that kiss. Now, here. here. comes the fuel. Yeah. Yeah. Got time for one more, one more question. Yes, ma'am. Growing up Presbyterian, I, I, I still, it's hard for me to let go of guilt when, mm -hmm. when it comes to giving. You know, sometimes I can give just out of pure joy, but I remember as a kid thinking, you know, after reading the Bible, thinking, well, really, you know, should I buy this makeup? Because there's so many poor people in the world, and shouldn't I use that money to give to them, to people who are starving, you know? And, and it, it's hard to get out of that mindset and I still you know even with meditation and, and a different spiritual path I still find myself having the same questions of is there if anyone in the world is suffering you know do I have should I ever buy that other pair of shoes or should I you know what are what are, it's hard for me to have those kind of boundaries. Right, and, and again, we're looking at ego trying to wear the spiritual robe because ego can't take both and. Ego see, sees it as an either-or proposition. If I am spiritual and I see that all others are suffering, then I can't buy that extra pair of shoes because that's wrong. And damn it, spirituality sucks. <laughs> right? It's an automatic out for it to kind of say, I tried that stuff. Man, I couldn't get the shoes I wanted. You know? Right? So, so instead, make sure that the gifts go both ways. Make sure that you are not excluded from the giving in, in either case, whether it's the makeup or the shoes or to your favorite charity or to, to someone or some group in need. It's all, it's all giving as long as it's done from that place where we have space around our thoughts and space around our bodies. Then we can move into the world with, with you know, an open heart, right? You are not excluded from that open heart. But we begin to see not only ourselves, but we see all beings as being part of this open heart. And that may change our decision-making when it comes to consumption. It may mean that the frivolity of some of our purchases starts to, you know, starts to fall away. Uh, it may mean that, that uh, purchases that are 
maybe not so good for the environment or are, are made with you know children's fingers those very obviously will, will strike us as something we're not going to go there right but it doesn't mean that we exclude spirit. <laughs> spiritual practice should never segment us it should unify us with all beings and the the guilt that um, you may have felt as a Presbyterian boy I think there are a lot of Methodists and Jews and Catholics and Buddhists that may you know feel that way as well it's a great arena for ego to diminish its capacity to expand it, the, all sorts of beautiful stories about how it should not <laughs> I'm not going down this path any further you know not if I can't get what I want. We're back into the negotiation. And the, big, the bigness in each of us is way beyond any negotiation. We become the offering in all ways. Thanks so much for coming tonight. Appreciate it.